0: Welcome to another episode of Lobby on Borders. My name is Miriam, and today we're going to talk about freedom of speech and where the line is being drawn. Therefore, I have asked my dear colleague and friend Amelia to join me and yeah, give a little bit more insight on the American perspective. And we will also be talking about um, some current events. And um, the reason why I asked her to do this with me is... Um, One, because, of course, she's amazing. She has done many great things. She's a great president. And um, another reason is that she has finished a bachelor's degree in liberal arts with a major in political sciences at the Colorado State University. Therefore, she definitely has... A better knowledge of the american perspective of things she's also lived there half her life so um, i'm very excited to have her and let's get started disclaimer before we actually get into the topic any opinion expressed in this podcast is of the personal view of the speakers and does not reflect ELSA's view because ELSA is a non-political organization and um, therefore these views are completely personal. Hi, Amelia. Thanks for coming in today. We're really glad to have you.
1: Of course. Thanks for asking me to do this with you.
0: Yeah, um, I think we have some interesting topics prepared, and um, yeah, maybe we can just start with, like, introducing us a little bit. So um, uh, today's guest is Amelia, who's my friend and colleague, and she's um, president of ELSA Tilburg, and um, yeah, you studied liberal arts, right?
1: Yeah, so... It's it can be a little bit confusing to someone who hasn't gone through the American system, but you basically get a bachelor's in a specific uh, like bigger like wider field. So in my case, liberal arts, but then you have to have a major within that. So it's more it's more specific. And my major was political science, and I, and then you can add minors to that. And one of my minors was legal studies. So I kind of specialized a little bit in um, in mostly well, actually only American law. So I wouldn't say that I'm like a scholar or an expert, but I did spend several years studying these things and so I can speak a little bit on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's gonna be really interesting. So um, as I mentioned before, we uh, decided that we want to talk about a topic that's really current at the moment. So where the line is drawn between free speech and hate speech and then talk about like the current events and Amelia is gonna be like our expert um, on the American side. And um, yeah, I think this is a really like current topic even though it's, it's always kind of current, I think you can say.
1: Yeah, I mean with, with everything that's been happening you know, recently in the United States but not just the United States because we live in a time of social media that it's unprecedented and there's not really that much guidance that comes from past laws as to how those platforms should be regulated. It's like, you know, is it the same as a newspaper, or is it something entirely new? Do we need to create a whole new framework in order to regulate the kinds of things that I that are said on social media? So this is, I think, something that is an issue, of course, in the United States, but not only there, especially if you look at, for example, like the rise of conspiracy theories and and um, the kinds of speech that you could argue are not necessarily in the public interest so I feel like there's just so much to be said and it's especially for us today because we're both global law students it's really interesting to have a comparative perspective on it Um, which is why we're also going to discuss a bit about how Germany regulates free speech and speech in general and um, like contrast the American approach to it with the German approach to it so Miriam you're going to be providing that perspective as well
0: yeah yeah i mean um i don't think i've mentioned so i grew up in germany but maybe we can start with the american perspective or like the american laws that are in
1: place yeah so the united states is um as most people know at this point if they they study our program it's a it's a common law country so it's it's, it's different from what we might know like here on the European continent in, in the sense that there there is statutory law and there is written law, but that's not the only primary form of law. Something that's also really important is um, court decisions and specifically Supreme Court decisions because the Supreme Court as its name suggests, m- makes decisions that are binding upon every other court in the land. So it's, uh, it's a doctrine known as stare decisis and, Um, in in like regular terms, precedent basically. So when the Supreme Court decides something, when they interpret something, that binds every other court and every other law making body in the country to follow that precedent, unless a subsequent um, like amendment is made. So speaking of which free speech in the US is um, enshrined in the first amendment of the constitution in in which was part of the original bill of rights the first set of amendments that were made to the us constitution and um i'll just like read it out quickly because it's not that long and i kind of want everyone to get a sense of of um how broad it is so it says congress shall make no law respecting an establish- establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof semi-comma or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to p- petition the government for a redress of grievances. So there's so much in just like packed into three yeah. little lines. <laughs> and um, the one that the, the part that we're concerned with today is the part of course, that says abridging the freedom of sp- speech or of the press. And it's that's super broad. There's like literally nothing else. And there's not been any other amendment in order to like add to that. So maybe you can like kind of show how Germany has a completely different approach to the f- like freedom of speech.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, so the way that it's handled in Germany, where like since Germany is a civil law country, um, everything is regulated mainly through um, yeah the legislation. And um, so in article five of the German basic law, which is basically the constitution, um it is said that every person shall have the right freely to express and disseminate his opinion in speech writing and pictures and to inform himself without hindrance from generally accessible sources freedom of the press and freedom of reporting by means of broadcasts and films shall be guaranteed there shall be no censorship so you could say that that in general is kind of similar to um, what you just read out Um, but the way that it is in Germany is that um, further down this article, there are some um,
1: specifications, you would say?
0: Yeah, yeah, I was looking for the word, basically, Um, it is specified what is, like, what kind of doesn't fall under freedom of speech, and there's basically, like, three pillars, what is, like, not classified as freedom of speech, and that is, basically, um, defamation and insults. So you're allowed to criticize people, but it's got to stay in lines. And then you also have youth protection. So everything that is about the glorification of violence um, or any other like youth unfriendly um, content that's also not considered freedom of speech. And then um, there's kind of this general um, article which says that freedom of speech is not in place when um, no so it's not considered freedom of speech when it goes against a general law so another law in like the german system Mm -hmm. um which is not opinionated though and then there's one exception um which probably most people are aware of um is that the only opinion which is actually prohibited is um the glorification or justification of the nazi regime um so if you say like if you publicly support this or like, for example, you say that the Holocaust didn't happen, then that is actually um, a crime. And yeah, so I think that could, that's like the broad um, scheme, how it's regulated in
1: Germany. That's, and I think that's one of the things, that, one of the reasons why I also wanted, like thought it would be really interesting for us to, to talk about Germany is, be- is specifically because of that exception of that opinion and that speech that is strictly prohibited which is mm. like denying the Holocaust or as you said like glorifying the Nazi regime because that's like something that um, in the United States that would be considered a violation of free speech and um, it would be considered the government basically imposing certain restrictions on people that are anti-constitutional against the first amendment and and maybe that's you know that that's probably surprising to hear as Mm. uh, someone from germany or even for me you know i'm originally from france it's really surprising to hear that it's allowed in the united states to deny the holocaust that it's like allowed to um to call yourself a neo-nazi and to participate in those kinds of organizations but i can since you highlighted the the basic structure of that of that um right in Germany I can kind of go into more detail on how it came to be regulated in the U.S. because as I as I showed like it's super broad right like would you be able to really derive any kind of judgment from just that
0: yeah yeah not really right so like yeah
1: and that's kind of what the courts were that's kind of how the courts reacted to this amendment for a long long time it's, it's kind of interesting, actually, the First Amendment, even though it was like supposed to be this principle that was like the bedrock of the American Republic, it, it went pretty much unenforced for until uh, the early 1900s. That's when there started to be very consequential court decisions that uh, added parameters to the First Amendment. Um, because broadly speaking, if you just look at this amendment, you, it kind of makes it seem like freedom of speech is an absolute ra- right. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's just a negative right, so it means like the state is not going to interfere, but does the state have any positive obligations at all towards people who want to express that speech like it doesn't it doesn't make any of these things clear so actually. Um, for a long time, it was very arbitrary, there were certain states or counties or cities that restricted the, the, the speech of their citizens without really much consequence, and um, it can be said that that was more of like a symbolic right rather than something that really was protected
0: oh okay that's that's interesting because um the way it is in germany is that it actually it needs to be protected and which is also like what's also interesting is that um something that we wanted to talk about later um like platforms like twitter or other social media platforms they Mm -hmm. need to they need to ensure that these things that I described that don't fall under that, that they are being removed. So um, there's this law that actually like obliges them to do that.
1: That's honestly something, and we'll definitely come back to this because that was something that we both found super interesting when we were when we were preparing, like leading up mm-hmm. to this podcast, is seeing how different legal cultures approach certain problems, certain rights very differently. And it's also really interesting to determine which um, which kind of culture affords more protection, right? Because Americans tend with the with the educational system in the U.S. and the way that I was taught about U.S. constitutional law, you're kind of taught to think in a very like U.S.-centric mindset, where you where you honestly feel like there is no other country that protects these <laughs> rights as well as the United States does.
0: And I mean, for you, that's really interesting because you're from France, so you kind of grew up with both, right? Like you came from the other continent basically and you're like oh this is just not kind of how it goes yeah (laughs)
1: exactly like i'm i was always like huh really you know maybe that's maybe there's another approach maybe there's another way because yeah like as you said france is a civil law country and we have more specifics as germany does and um so yeah this is this some sometimes you know this was very surprising to me but basically in the u.s there's been over so the, I would say the 20th and now the 21st century, there's been an evolution in in how you determine what is free speech and what is um, harmful speech or hate speech or any anything you want to call any something that would fall outside of the free speech protections. And the first the first way that that was uh, determined was in a case called Schenck versus United States, and I think that was in the early either the late 1800s or the early 1900s. I can't recall the specific date, but basically. Um, Uh, the supreme court determined a standard that was called clear the clear clear and present danger test and basically the to quote a a part of the case one of the justices says the question in every case are used in such circumstances and of such nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that congress has a right to prevent sorry the question in every case is whether or not the speech will bring about these circumstances Um, and so this became known as the clear and present danger test. And that was how uh, speech was categorized either as free speech or harmful speech for pretty much half a century. So um, one fam- another famous example from that case is, is like, you would not be allowed to stand up in, in, a, in a crowded thea- theater and yell fire without that, be cons- and you would not be allowed to do that. That would not be con- considered free speech. That would be considered harmful oh. because okay. it would lead to a clear and present danger. So that's kind of like random right like a random way to determine what is free and what is not free Um, it doesn't
0: really seem um effective or like
1: or objective yeah yeah like and you'll see that it's kind of a funny characteristic of american uh, especially like supreme court decisions is that they have a lot of these like little tests like they'll write a decision and they write such like lengthy decisions. And then they just like throw in that sentence in there. And that becomes like the way that things are regulated, like the clear and present danger. It's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it's like a quirk almost, you know?
0: Yeah, and also, also to define what is a clear and present danger, that's like another thing, right? Like, yeah,
1: that's not at all objective. Yeah. That's like an attempt to have an objective test, but it's not really that objective. And then actually, what's really interesting is that you have a case about, I, I think it's about 20 years later, uh, in, it's, in, it's Abrams versus the United States, where the justice who wrote that, opi- that opinion in, in Schenck versus United States, the justice who created the clear and present danger test, he takes back his opinion, but he's not in the majority, but he goes against his initial opinion in this 1919 case, where he says that he actually thinks the clear and present danger test is too vague and that it gives too much power to lawmaking bodies. So he basically realizes, like, I messed up, like I gave too much power to the government. So now I need to walk it back. But the rest of the court still likes his original test. So that's, oh, wow.
0: Okay. Yeah yeah so one then, thing am sorry no go ahead no one thing that came to my mind is what we talked about earlier about like the how in germany the opinion of the holocaust didn't exist or like the nazi glorification um you know it's prohibited because it constitutes um a danger to freedom so that's why it's prohibited but then in the u.s it isn't but then there's this test which is kind of like clear and present danger and in like in Germany everyone would be like not everyone like the people that actually supported, of course not but the majority would be like okay this is like a clear and present danger this is like this has caused so much harm and then I I when I hear that I ask myself like how is that like a test that I can actually function
1: yeah yeah like I- exactly because it's it it's almost it's more about the individual him or herself rather than the community and how like speech can affect a specific community. And that's, I feel like that's also something that you see that's so different between the German legal culture and the American legal culture is that there's much more focus on the individual in the United States than there is on the, like the good of the community as a whole. And, you know, perhaps that's reflective of how those societies are in general, not just in their legal cultures. I feel like that can also be interesting to think about. And, um, I mean, also maybe to put it in context, the clear and ple- clear and present danger test was created before world war Two and before the Holocaust. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the question of, of, uh, race, racism, and, um, anti-Semitism and all of that, it did start coming into the, the US courts post-World War II and post Holocaust. And actually that's, this is a really good segue into the next really precedent setting case in, the, in 1969, which is known as Brandenburg v- versus Ohio, where, uh, so Brandenburg in this case was a government official who was basically um, caught attending a Ku Klux Klan rally in Ohio. Which, which for people who might not know the KKK, it still is an organization founded on, based upon white supremacy. And that has also espoused anti-Semitic uh, notions and is very sympathetic to neo-Nazis. And so basically in this case, the the Supreme Court loosened the clear and present danger test standard. And they said that, only speech that provokes imminent lawless action can be restricted. So in this particular case, the KKK as a whole and this person attending a rally, that is considered, according to the ruling in that case, that's considered free speech. And even if you're marching around chanting the most, something that is, you know, the most horrific things that would offend my sensibilities personally and would offend most people's sensibilities, the court rules, those things are legally protected free speech. And they 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 draw like there's another one of those examples um, similar to the the fire in a crowded theater um, example in the first case that I discussed. In this particular case, the Supreme Court says like, look, if for example you had um, someone someone went to a park and like stood on a on a tree stump and started yelling like some horrible horrible profane things about Jewish people, that would be considered free speech, no matter how vile it got. The only reason, the only way in which we would say this is no longer free speech and it's hateful speech or conduct that we must restrict is if that sa- very same person saw, I don't know, saw like a Jewish person walking out of the synagogue and incited his or her followers to go after that Jewish person in, the, in that moment, hence the imminent lawless action test. The, the court says that's the only situation in which we could say, okay, that person's words their speech in this instance is not free and must be punished and so like again that's like very subjective and in my opinion we're going to
0: take a quick break and be back in a second we're back and um to kind of pick up where we left, um, Amelia wanted to um, continue talking about the situation in the US. I think, and an important case because um, we also plan to talk a little bit about um, freedom of speech and regards to the Twitter scandal and Trump, and um, yet yeah, to put that into context.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think it's it, it, that's that's why you know I've been going into more detail well, not like an extensive amount of detail, but I've been explaining some of these different cases because I think it's important to see the evolution of how it works in, in the US. And it's important to understand that um, one of the, from an outsider perspective, one of the reasons why it seems like things are maybe not regulated in a very strict way in the States is is, is almost by design. It's because of the way that the common law system works, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, viewed from a different perspective there's no strictness there's no necessarily strict guidelines on what free speech and hate speech is so it's like you have to take it all into into context and um with the 20th century as I was mentioning earlier we saw these two different tests the clear and present danger test and the imminent lawless action test and in addition to those you actually have like a whole other almost um Um, Category of Supreme Court cases in the 20th century that are mostly concerned with pornography obscenities and those kinds of uh, those kinds of things. I don't really think that they're super relevant to our conversation right now, especially because it's it's a lot of Each case brings about different very subjective tests that don't have much bearing on what's going on nowadays. So I don't think it's necessarily important to go into detail, although I do think it might be interesting to mention that briefly. But the last thing I actually did really wanna talk about is um, a case that happened in 2012. And it's pretty relevant to our con- the conversation that we're about to have on like Twitter and Donald Trump. And that's the case of Snyder versus Phelps. So to just give some background, Phelps is um, a member of a church in the United States that's known as the Westboro Baptist Church. And they're very, um, Infamous for being hardline conservative Christians, and one of the things that they do as part of their as part of their um, ideology is that they will picket uh, they will stand outside of public events with signs, and they will picket those and uh, to protest the United States and protest against the homosexuality, among other things, and what they view as moral depravity within the united states Mm -hmm. and uh, in this case basically snyder was the snyder was the parents of a u.s a fallen u.s soldier who was holding a a, they were holding a funeral for their son and the phelps phelps and his family and the westboro baptist church showed up uh, with signs picketing that funeral in protest of the united states government and um and in protest of certain policies in the in the u.s government oh my god And they were on their signs, right? It was close to the funeral. And on those signs, they were, they had things written such as, um, thank God for the death of soldiers, different, uh, what might be considered very like emotionally harmful speech.
0: That's so like terrible. Like imagine,
1: Uh, like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Like this family is grieving the death of their son and, you know, these people show up with unspeakable signs basically yeah
0: especially someone who like served their their country and probably i mean i don't know like his exact circumstances but i mean you that's someone you like whose death you should honor i mean i guess he was probably also very young from from yeah the context so
1: and basically the family that's what they're arguing right they're saying that um this is this is highly Uh, disrespectful and not only that it's emotionally very harmful for a grieving family so they sue the the Westboro Baptist Church uh for like different torts one of them being the intentional infliction of emotional distress but in the end basically the the court rules in favor of Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church saying that they don't they don't rule on the content of the speech but that they they actually for the first time kind of establish a more uh um more widely encompassing test for how speech is regulated. They basically say that the um, there's that we have to afford a higher level of protection to speech that is considered public or in the public interest versus speech that is private. So in this particular situation, they say you have to look at um, you have to look at on you know, case by case basis uh, whether or not something has to be punished, and that's based on the context, the content, and the form of the speech. And so they go into like all this analysis of like, for example, how far away are the Phelps family standing from the funeral, uh, from the funeral location? Um, are they being disruptive to the funeral procession? All of these different, like they, they examine these different elements and they say that this is how you have to determine whether or not speech is going to be restricted or whether it's going to be protected. So they, they based on these, the content context form criteria, they, de- they determine that the funeral of this fallen US soldier was indeed indeed a public forum and a public forum in which the Phelps family was expressing a political opinion. And therefore they say that this their speech is protected and that to hold them liable for the torts that the family was suing them under would be a violation of the first amendment. And that's kind of right now, the precedent that stands like, is it public or private? And that is determined based on content, context, and the form of the speech itself. Um, which I maybe is the closest version to an objective test that has been created since the since the beginning, since the first case that I mentioned.
0: Okay, so so basically, if I understood it right, in any public forum or yeah, anything that's considered public, you can basically so if it isn't private then you can say whatever you want under in line with those other tests but if it's private
1: then it can be forbidden i yeah so i think so basically it's um yeah you're you're basically almost right i think there are there are still a few exceptions because for example like you can't tell outright lies because that would be defamation like there are then that's like an, another topic as well but i feel like we would be sitting here forever if we were going <laughs> to go into that because there are also you know torts of libel defamation and slander in the united states so you can't just make things up and lie um because lo- those are considered harmful but if you're expressing yeah basically if you're expressing a political opinion in a public space then there's you're allowed to do that and there is no legal uh, ramifications for banning that and
0: even even if it's lies because w- you know what I'm thinking about right now is for example like a lot of the things that Trump has said which were like straight up lies
1: and um, he- if it's yeah if it's I mean that's kind of what I was saying what I was alluding to if it's and that's, that's like a whole other conversation as well, because how can you distinguish, how do you distinguish between something that is a, a stated opinion and an outright lie? And I, that's also somewhere, that's also something that, again, it's not specified in the First Amendment. So you then have to kind of int- like judges, it's up to them to interpret that. And so there's all of these other tests that are part of tort law more so than constitutional law to determine whether or not something is like if it's a harmful opinion or if it's like an outright lie that is harmful or damaging to someone's reputation but that's again like that's more like tort Mm -hmm. law because
0: because the way that the way that it is in germany in, in contrast i think is that um if you state like if you consciously state these lies so that like they're meant to come out as lies and like alter the truth then that isn't that then that is wrong Mm -hmm. so it's forbidden but if you like unconsciously like say something wrong then of course that isn't so it's it's a bit
1: more concrete i'd say but still yeah yeah Yeah, honestly that's the more i've learned about how other countries approach these kinds of topics the more I've realized that there's much there, the U.S. deals with, for example, free speech in much more abstract terms than uh, Germany does. At least like in uh, like on paper, right? Because like again, like the First Amendment, there's you have to almost inter- you have to breathe a lot of these things like like breathe life into these these topics, and mm-hmm. it, it's all been. All of these like subparts of free speech have come about through interpretation. Um, so maybe like you know you could argue that perhaps it's not, that the free speech is not as well protected or as well regulated in the U.S. as it is in Germany. And that's like something interesting to point. That's also interesting to consider
0: yeah i mean the german like basic laws also kind of build around this whole like our history of course so like everyone's very like determined to um to yeah not have these extremist people to people not having like publicly tell lies and yeah i think because like you you would hope that people have learned from
1: from their mistakes yeah Um, that's that's so true like that history has such a bearing on how these things and end up being because if you look at the constitution and the the bill of rights those are a product of the fact that the US you know had recently claimed its independence from a colonial empire and from an oppressive government so of course it th- those amendments were created with as little word, wording as possible because the at least, you know, what people, what constitutional scholars say today is that the original intent of these amendments was to basically keep the government as much as possible out of people's lives. And if you fast forward now, like two centuries later, we live in a world that's so complex beyond anything that these, you know, the founding fathers of the US Constitution ever could have imagined. That, of course, there's so many things that we have to interpret and adapt to our modern circumstances. Um, in effect kind of making the first amendment, maybe like it it seems a little bit outdated compared to, um, it seems maybe a little bit outdated compared to what, for for example, Germany has. Because Germany's laws clearly have been influenced by much more recent events.
0: Yeah, that's what you mentioned to me when we talked uh, like for the podcast preparation as well, right? You said there was like, I don't know 20 or or like around 20 amendments in the whole like history of the constitution I don't know the exact number but um you you would think like okay this is like yeah almost like two centuries ago how how should this effectively and accurately like regulate today's society so
1: right like I I forget myself the exact number I think it's 25 or 26 I should know this but uh yeah, if you think about it, it's kind of crazy, but it, it really shows you, though, that there is this kind of this um, this deference, this level of, of respect for the Constitution in the US. Like the Constitution is really almost seen as like a sacred document, you know, whereas I like to joke that in France, anytime we don't like our form of government, we tear up the Constitution and make a new one. <laughs> we're literally on our you know, we're on our fifth republic. We've had many constitutions and we're not attached to it like, yeah, we are attached. Like, yes, we are a constitutional democracy and everything. But if we think that there's something that needs to be changed, we change it. In, in the United States, it's very much like the, the constitution is this document that is infused with the wisdom of the founding fathers. And there's this level of, um, of you know, def- as, I, as, as I said, deference to it. And I think in some regards, it's a good thing. In some regards, it might not be as, as good of a thing. It's has like let's just say the constitution is like has blueprints and then the job of the courts and of scholars over the last two centuries has been to kind of build on top of those using those blueprints build the foundations and then build on top of those foundations
0: yeah i mean it's also just because like the common law system works so differently i mean i can't imagine studying like you know law in the us i imagine that to be kind of mess to say it like like that because there's so many just like cases and maybe that's just like the way that i grew up because i think germany's kind of set to be one of the most like systemic legal systems and everything has like its paragraph and its book and its place and its system and um i mean i really
1: like that um, but um yeah there's definitely perks to both right yeah to me it's it's like i have a, a foot in both because you no, know, France obviously was where you know Napoleon was French and he kind of revolutionized the way that the law worked and he was one of the pioneers of you know the, the civil like civil law systems mm-hmm. as we know them today so I have as a friend like growing up in France like I have a lot of res- respect for that but you know I also spent a lot of time in the U.S. studying U.S. law so I also see a kind of uh, I do see like a kind of of beauty and academic interest in the common law i for me both are fascinating systems that have their benefits and their disadvantages
0: yeah yeah they definitely are um yeah. and i mean that's where we study global law right so mm-hmm. we have yeah. like a bit of both and yeah um, especially yeah i think global law is kind of composed of these kinds of people like people that kind of come from different places, have different backgrounds. Um, I like to, like, what I like to say is back, like in days of high school, and I think you've made the same experience that everyone, like most people are just, they, and they grew up in a place, often their parents are from that place and they're very like used to that. And then my parents are both um, like, they're not, they didn't grow up in Germany, so, I was al- i was always kind of like a bit different if you want to say so but then i like i came to tilburg and there's all these people like you and everyone that has like lived here and their parents are there and then mm. it's that's kind of the beauty of it too
1: yeah it, it's i think it, it you there's a certain richness in like in intellectual terms to being exposed to so many different ways of doing and in our in our in the case of our program ways like legal cultures Um, and it's really interesting to see how people will react very differently to, to different issues, which actually is, like, I think this is a good segue into the the last thing we were going to talk about, which was a more current event, like, more relevant uh, topic when it comes to free speech, which is what happened in the United States, I think, at this point, three weeks ago, with Twitter's decision to... Ban uh, former U.S. President Donald Trump from their platform, and I think this decision was followed by Facebook, Instagram, Facebook. Instagram most social media platforms. I think, and um, it was very interesting to see how people reacted across the across the pond, reacted differently to to these news. So, like for example, you can talk maybe a bit how about how uh, the german chancellor reacted to this and i was surprised but then now when i've thought about it i'm like it, her reaction makes sense
0: yeah yeah i um i actually read a bit before um we met because i was like okay let's like refresh what she actually said and um basically the majority of german people were like reacted very positively and this article that i read was from a german lawyer and he said like Like his opinion was that um, he thinks Twitter was not like too early in banning him but actually too late and what um, Merkel said is basically that she thinks it's wrong because she doesn't see how Twitter as a private company should decide and that it's um, yeah kind of like a what's the word.
1: an infringement. A breach,
0: yeah, of like uh, free speech, freedom of speech, um, and what she said, like I think her point was that this should be enforced by like the governments and like the law, they should decide and then they should have these private companies kind of enforce that, but they shouldn't be deciding these things for themselves because she said that this is also um, This can also, and that's another thing that I read, that this can be kind of used by other like countries and actors to kind of justify their breach of freedom of speech by just um, censoring people that they don't like to see, countries that maybe don't necessarily have um, all these democratic um, pillars. And um, so, yes, definitely there's two sides to it. I think Mm. like my first reaction was also very positive, but now that I like hear the different sides to it, I'm like, oh yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a very, I think it's a very nuanced topic and it's uh, similar to you. I have a hard time making my mind up about it because basically what, what Merkel is saying is that she believes there is a positive obligation by the government to regulate these social media platforms and that, these private companies should not be left to their own devices when it comes to deciding what speech is free and what what speech is harmful and and as a result should be restricted and i honestly i think that's part of me finds that a very finds that to be a very compelling argument when you when you transfer transfer that over to the us it's a bit more complicated because again free speech is has traditionally been seen more as a negative right than a positive right And if it's a negative right, it means that the the government should be staying out of cases that are private. So if you look at Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, those are private companies. And what applies, the the rules that apply to being on their platforms are not the United States Constitution or any state constitution or any uh, federal or state statute. It's the terms of service, which is basically the contract that you sign with those platforms when you sign up. And they, you know, people on either side say that the only things that people, users, or maybe like tweets should only be restricted if they violate that, uh, that uh, those terms of service that you, that you sign up for when you join those platforms. Um, And that, I mean, that argument can kind of go both ways because, you know, it, it can be beneficial for people who were, it can be beneficial for people who were against Donald Trump or even for Donald Trump. In the At, at the moment, it's an argument that's being used by people who say, oh, well, Twitter is allowed to, to ban him if they think that it violated their terms of service. But then you also, similar to that German lawyer you were mentioning, there are some people who actually say, no, like Twitter should have had an obligation, a legal obligation to censor him much earlier because his speech was harmful and it was hurtful and it was uh, in, this, in the case of what happened on the ca- in the Capitol, it incited violence, like directly incited violence. So there's, I feel like it's a very, it's a very gray topic because depending on whether, like if you're gonna say, if, you're, if, if the Supreme Court of the United States, if this ends up being something that goes to the Supreme Court, whatever they rule, like it's gonna have such huge implications for how social media is, is regulated in the future. And it kind of goes back to the the snyder snyder v phelps case that i was talking about right like with the public versus private Mm -hmm. because there's certain instances where even if something is considered a private like it's a privately owned forum courts have ruled that they're in effect de facto public areas where speech should not be infringed upon like malls for example or parts of cities that even though they're streets that are technically owned by a, a private company, they're effectively a public space. So the speech that takes up that takes place in those public spaces should still be un, unrestricted and fall under the First Amendment. And so that kind of transfers over now to social media platforms. Like, they're yes, they're privately owned companies, but are they de facto public spaces? So is a court going to say that these that First Amendment protections do apply in those de facto public spaces. And if you know this, if this is something that goes to the to the Supreme Court, I don't know, if some kind of civil liberties group decides to sue Twitter, maybe there's already cases going on. If it goes to the Supreme Court and they, whichever direction they roll, is gonna have huge implications for how this is regulated in the US in the future. And um, personally, I really don't know what to think in this situation. Like Because I do think that Twitter waiting until, like this is my own personal opinion, Twitter waited, waiting until just recently to ban Donald Trump from their platforms, it has resulted in a lot of harm being done over the years, a lot of misinformation being spread, uh, previous violence being incited, or even encouraged and or praised by the president subsequently to to the violence. You know, I can think back to the Charlottesville riots that happened, I think in 2018 or 2017, where the, there was like a young activist on the left who was killed by a neo, like neo-Nazis. Um, you You can think to so many things that, that the former president posted on Twitter that, is speech that resulted in harm and in lawless action, or that encouraged further lawless action. So in a sense, maybe that's a compelling argument for what Ms. Merkel was saying, which is the idea that you should, that these platforms, that the government does have a positive obligation to regulate those platforms and to protect its citizens. Mm -hmm.
0: So yeah it's very like i think this just shows again kind of what we talked like before how the common and civil law and like in, in our cases germany and the u.s they just have so different approaches that like mm-hmm. result in
1: such a different um
0: result um
1: and yeah can have such different implications on the, on the population and i feel like it's also relevant because in the future as i said like these our world is becoming complex beyond anything that people could have imagined 200 years ago and you know violence being incited through twitter uh, misinformation and fake news being spread through twitter is is not something that's going to stop today or tomorrow if anything it's only going to get more and more prevalent because we you know 20 years ago there were only a couple million people who were connected on the internet now we have billions and the potential there is huge and also these companies you know twitter facebook youtube all of that they're starting to acquire a significant amount of power that mm-hmm. is almost making them like their own lawmaking bodies like i think facebook even has its own supreme court i was reading something about that and to me like that's we have to get ahead of this this problem if if not you know try to limit it because it's a problem that has already started to really become more consequential. And there have, I, my personal opinion is, that I think governments need to start positively regulating these social media platforms and, cons- and and the speech that is put on there should be probably subject to certain restrictions. But again, it's, you, I think you mentioned this earlier, this is also something that is coming from the perspective of uh, democratic countries and liberal democracies um because we have a certain level of trust in our government to protect those rights whereas if you look at non-democracies or maybe illiberal democracies citizens of those countries might have a completely different point of view because their governments already do own social media platforms yeah yeah yeah, yeah. speech that's on those platforms yeah that's
0: that's one of the things that um one of the things i refer to which was also in the same article that i read um, was that um Navalny, he said that um he really disagrees with twitter's decision to um to ban trump from twitter because um the way that he experiences it in russia is that that's like his forum to to voice his opinion and like if then the government or like just twitter could just ban him then that voice would be taken from him and that's why he like sharply criticized it because he was like oh like now for example like our our government has like this precedent and can like like, we can just you know ban these people and look the us did it as well like twitter Mm.
1: but yeah Yeah. oh yeah that's yeah that and that's something that i would not think of if you hadn't brought it up honestly it's it really goes to show how much our your background informs how you react to these different like Mm -hmm. very thorny legal issues because you know both of us have a more European background and I mean granted I've lived in the United States for a very long time so that's why I'm also sometimes I feel like I have almost dual personality in terms of <laughs> how I react to these issues you know so like for me it seems logical to say that the government should positively regulate these platforms but to a Russian person or even maybe to an American person who lived through the cold war that's something that just like sets off these like alarm bells in their in their head and they're just like no 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 this is government censorship and mm. you know, this is yeah it's, it's
0: such a fine line
1: yeah it's it is line. and on top of that I feel like there's another argument that some people raise it's like you know if you drive this kind of speech off of public platforms all you'd succeed in doing is is basically driving it underground where it's no longer that visible and where it can maybe fester.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, we've, I think we've kind of gone for everything and we could continue talking about this yeah. probably for hours. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, thank you for coming in and um, giving us this overview. I really enjoyed having you. And,
1: oh, uh, yeah. I loved having this conversation too. It was super in, like, informative and uh, really fun for me as well.
0: Yeah, um, maybe we'll we'll do another episode sometime. This is like the second episode of our podcast, so um, we really hope to continue this. But yeah. yeah, for now, I think that's it.
1: Thank you so much, Miriam.
0: I also want to thank my sister Sarah for creating the soundtrack that you've been hearing, and my colleague Iwana for designing the podcast logo. Thank you for tuning in and till next time.